So Shane um, is from Paducah, Kentucky. Um, and in Paducah, Kentucky, I mean, I, I, I assume they still do it, but for the longest time, and I grew up in Mayfield, which is just down the road from Paducah, and they would do a quilting event in Paducah. They still do that, you know, Shane? Okay, oh yeah, okay, I didn't know. I mean, you know, everything's changed in our world, so I didn't know if the quilting was still a thing in Paducah, but um, so it got me thinking as I was preparing this message about how much I knew about quilting. Um, and I know nothing about quilting. But as I was looking at um, our text for today and I reflected upon quilting basics, I Googled it. And because Google is the answer to almost everything. And um, the first thing I noticed that to be a good quilter, um, you need to pick the right fabric. So you gotta pick the right fabric and because of its thickness, because of its texture, quilting cotton proves a great choice. As long as it's tight, has an even weave with no burrs or broken threads. So there's that piece. Um, it's also unwise to choose a polyester or a cotton poly blend. And you probably all know the reason why, so I'm just kind of, but it's because when that fabric is pressed at high temperatures, it can melt or shrink. So polyester and poly, poly, cotton poly blends are, are, are thin and they don't last as long. Um, so we should choose a cotton fabric. Now, I'm beyond choosing the correct fabric. I'm sure Jack McAllister knows this. Um, you must master a quarter inch seam. Right, Jack? That's Jack shaking his head. Mastering, mastering the right seam is essential for establishing the correct pattern. The reason for that is it ensures that the quilt will look the way it's supposed to look. Um, so it seems to me that the church is best based on basic quilting principles. Uh, what, do I, what do I mean by that? I simply mean that we need to be cut from the right fabric and that we need to be establishing correct patterns. And so it is, we come to Philippians chapter four, verses one through nine, where Paul establishes the basic quilting patterns of the church. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So ends the reading of God's word. The first thing that I notice from Paul's admonition here is that we in the church must be of the right fabric. We must not melt or shrink back when pressed at high temperatures. We must not have burrs or broken threads. In verse 1, Paul tells the members of the church at Philippi to stand fast. Or in other words, don't melt, don't shrink back. Um, for those of you who were part of the small group Bible study we did in the spring, we, we went through the book of Philippians together. And I am reminded of Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, where the apostle exhorts us to stand fast for the gospel even amid persecution and suffering. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11, where the apostle reminds us to stand fast for the gospel against those who would try to add legalistic conditions to it. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where the apostle explains we must stand fast for the gospel whenever people would pull us away unto wayward living. The truth is that in this world in which we live, the temperature of society will often press us one way or another. Let us not then be a thin polyester or cotton poly blend. Let us choose to take on quilted cotton we must possess a thick, textured faith. I was talking to another parent just the other day, and she told me that she communicates with her children often that when they stand for certain principles of Scripture, that they can expect for people to hate them. Not disagree with them, mind you. Hate them. I don't think that she's far off. You can see it when people vandalize churches and other faith-based organizations or when they steal church signs and burn them. It's happening right now. We're not just talking about disagreement here. We're talking about hatred. You and I had better take on a quilted cotton type of faith. In verses 2 and 3, Paul then counsels the church of Philippi against burrs and against broken threads. 
Note that Euodia and Syntyche were not polyester or cotton poly blend Christians. Paul, in fact, uses gladiator language to describe them. He says that they fought literally side by side with him for the gospel. And yet, even these two gladiator-type Christians had some type of burr or broken thread that emerged and it threatened the fabric of the church. Paul implores them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Again, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where the apostle calls for unity through humility. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where the apostle warns us against fruitless complaints, against disputes that could hurt our Christian testimony. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, where the apostle provides examples of two individuals who chose to put others before themselves. If we're honest, though, sometimes we find it difficult to set aside hard feelings towards a brother or a sister in Christ. Perhaps we know in our heads that we should let go of our resentment, but we have a difficult time translating that to our hearts and to our actions. In circumstances such as these, we should not hesitate to pull into the situation wise counsel, a, a friend, somebody who can help bring about a peaceful resolution, who can prevent division from spreading through the church. Unfortunately, we too often find a dynamic emerge where some people side with Yodia and some people side with Syntyche and the church splinters. All the while, what we need to do is sit down with one another and try to work out differences in a spirit of unity. Stirring up rivalry over a matter, speaking behind someone else's back, simply ghosting a brother or sister in the Lord is not displaying the right fabric. I mean, what would it look like if every time my wife and I had a disagreement, we just said, we're done. Our marriage wouldn't last long. And we need to be willing to sit and talk with one another, not talk about one another. The second thing I noticed from Paul's teaching in this passage is that we in the church must establish correct patterns. Just as a good quilter must master the right seam, members of Christ's church should strive to master a right disposition and right character. If we fail to establish correct patterns, the church, like a quilt, will not look the way it should. And so Paul outlines for us the measurements of good quilters. In verses 4 through 7, he highlights that Christians should possess a joyful, gentle, peace-filled, 
disposition. Verse 4 is an imperative. It is a command. No loopholes exist here. Paul says regardless of how painful a situation, regardless how humiliating a situation, regardless of how exasperating a situation may seem, rejoice. It's not an option. It's a command. Rejoice. I think a joy-filled disposition will translate to our treating others kindly and gently. They may attack us with hate, but we should kill them with kindness. After all, Christ is near to us. The Lord is at hand, Paul says. And this nearness of Christ should compel us to treat others as Jesus treated us. William Hendrickson says it like this, the Christian is the person who reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than it is to inflict wrong. I want to read that again. He says, the Christian is the person who reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than it is for me to inflict wrong. Christ's nearness also translates to a deep, abiding peace. Jesus declares in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that you and I have is the abiding presence of the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit. And Paul likens that to an insurmountable fortress that God has stationed in our hearts against which nothing shall overcome. In her poem, Fortress, Mary Smith White writes, I have harvested the fruit that sorrow sows, and the long years have slowly brought release. I have bared my mind to every wind that blows to find at last the benison of peace. I have found within my soul a sure retreat. Never need I fear failure. Never need I fear defeat. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our fortress. We can thus sing with a psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We can echo the heart of Peter from 1 Peter 5, verse 7, to cast all our anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for us. In addition to our disposition, the correct pattern of our character should reflect moral excellence. That's Paul's focus in verse 8. We need to hold on to truth, not falsehood. Most practically, this means we embrace the full teaching of the gospel. Most practically, this means that when we open up God's word, we don't argue with it, we submit to it. But it also means that we do not deceive others. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. 
It may not always be easy, but we speak in candor with one another. We need to reflect nobility by living honorably. We will not sling mud even when mud is being slung all around us. My wife loves a quote from the former First Lady Michelle Obama, and she repeats it often. She'll say, when they go low, we go high. Or listen to the lengthier counsel of Mother Teresa, one of my personal heroes of the faith. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight, build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. We need to actively practice justice rather than take part in injustice. You know, and I would be remiss if I did not say that practicing justice is doing the right thing. It doesn't mean just avoiding the wrong thing. I couldn't say it better than Isaiah in Isaiah 1 verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. How often do we pray for the orphaned? How often do we seek ways to help children? How often do we pray for the widow? How often do we find ways to serve those who are widowed? There's so much that we can practically be doing. We can't do everything, but we can do something. We need to be persons of purity, not corruption. And this pertains to all our thoughts, all our words, all our actions. We will avoid filth in all its form. How? How am I to stay pure in an impure world? The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, by keeping our path according to God's word, 
by hiding God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. And did you know that if we read five chapters of scripture each day, we would read the Bible from cover to cover every year? Is it worth our time to read five chapters of scripture every day? I would say yes. Because the way to guard myself from impurity is to hide God's word in my heart. We need to be persons of loveliness, not nastiness. Some of you, many of you, a few of you, maybe have seen the movie The Help. It's a great film. It provides a good dichotomy of praiseworthiness versus nastiness. Abilene Clark is a black woman who was a housekeeper and a nanny for a white family. She actually had nannied a number of white families in the Old South. And she was dismissed from her last job, as it would turn out to be, out of spite. She says to Hilly Hillbrook, all you do is scare and lie to get what you want. You're a godless woman. Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Ain't you tired? If you watch the film, Hilly is the epitome of one who's marked by nastiness and racism. And then you've got Abilene, one who depicts loveliness, a person who builds up rather than tears down. She turns, it's really honestly, to me, the most powerful scene from a very powerful movie when she turns that last time to little Mae Mobley, this little bitty girl who's neglected by her own mother. And she says to this little girl, you was kind, you was smart, you was important. And as she's leaving, you see that little girl beaten on the window, not wanting May to leave, and not wanting Eveline to leave. You know, you see something like that, and you, and hopefully you realize, I don't want to be a Hilly Hillbrook. I want to be an Abilene. I want to be somebody who is kind and fair and loving and just and noble and honorable. I want to be like that. In the midst of the conflict that exists between Yodia and Syntyche, Paul is saying, focus on these moral qualities of excellence. Return to what God is calling you to be, united of the right fabric and correct patterns so that the quilt is beautiful and not destroyed and tattered. But listen, unbelievers need an example to emulate. New believers need an example to emulate. That's what 
Paul is talking about in verse 9. Emulate me. I'm, I'm always so humbled by Paul in this. Think about what he says time and time again. You want to see what Jesus looks like? Look at me. Wow. What would this church, what would this church look like if each one of us could honestly say to others, if you want to see what Jesus looks like, look at me. For the new believer and for the unbeliever, I think it would be powerful. Playing golf tomorrow with two gyms and maybe a Shane. Um, I, I love the game of golf. Always have loved the game of golf. It's a, it's a beautiful sport. Um, one of my favorite golfers, and he's since fallen under some scrutiny, and I... I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but I just know that I always loved Phil Mickelson. And Phil Mickelson, is, is, his nickname is Lefty. Um, do you know that Phil Mickelson is right-handed? He plays golf left-handed, but he's right-handed. And the reason why he plays golf left-handed is because when he was a little bitty boy, his dad loved to play golf. He grew up in you know, in a, in a very affluent kind of situation. And his dad loved to play golf. And so Phil Mickelson, here his dad was playing golf right-handed, and Phil Mickelson wanted to be like his dad. And so he would emulate his father. And the way he emulated his father was he learned to swing left-handed. Uh, he was a natural. It didn't take long before his ability far exceeded that of his father. Truth be told that's the heart of every dad that their kids would be better than them that my boys and my daughter would be better than me that's what I want But for them to grow up better than me, I've got to give them something to emulate. My swing at least has to be somewhat right. Or their swing will grow up to be wrong. Listen, the purpose of Paul's letter to Philippi is really a message for the church to stay and stand fast together in the fellowship of the gospel. Let's not let anything separate us if we're united in the gospel. Not to let some burr interfere with crafting of the quilt that we would be united that we would be 
cut from the right fabric, that we would be developing the right patterns. If I were to summarize the entire book of Philippians, it would be like this. Live for Jesus in the church and in the world. Love like Jesus in the church and in the world. Look like Jesus in the church and in the world. That's not easy, but it's what we're called to. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unite us together as you are united in the spirit of love. I pray in your name. Amen. Our um, song of response this morning is um, How He Loves. Um, I will say just not to my, my son Whitman, I believe it was Whitman, it may have been Chamlin, I can't remember, but one of them, um, when you listen to the lyrics, you know, um, it says, um, he is jealous for me, I am, a, something, I am a tree, or something like that. It, it, it's, it's a metaphor, you know, the analogy of the song. And um, when we were, when they were, when one of them was little, I can't remember which one it was now, would constantly say to me, um, I'm not a tree. Um, so, but, um, you know, just as we sing this and we, and we hear the beautiful metaphors that are put forward in this, in this song, um, if you have something that you need to come to be, to be prayed over, be prayed for, um, as, as we sing this, as, as Paul and Chris and, and Sue um, lead us in this, um, just know that the altar is open for, for anything. It's not just coming down to profess faith or join the church. It's coming down to say, I just, I just need prayer. Um, or I just want to pray. Um, that's, the altar is open. Um, let's stand as we sing.